The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to another episode of Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little known facts behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows and more. We are your maestros of meteorology movies, your wizards of wind-related wise words, your hosts who prove it's possible to both suck and blow at the same time. My name is Jordan Runtog. That last one was a Simpsons reference, but is it? I think it is. I think it is, but my question is, how did you not get anything in there about hot air? Oh! You really Man. left that one on the table. Oh, wait, your well, senses, you your you. your sensei, your senses of spiraling scintilla, uh, gonna be a great one in the edit, folks. And I'm Alex Heigl. <laughs> now, folks, something very special happened recently. We had a little bit of TMI kismet. Last episode, we taped Van Halen's 1984, and Heigl mentioned wanting to do the 1996 disaster drama Twister. Because Van Halen had done a song for the soundtrack. And I mentioned wanting to tackle a topic that involved the Dutch person. Because the Van Halens are Dutch and they have a lot to answer for. <laughs> so I put this idea out of my mind until I saw a trailer for the upcoming Twister sequel, Twisters, during the Super Bowl. And I thought, this is a sign. We gotta do Twister. And then I realized that Twister was directed by a Dutchman named Jan de Bont. So all in all... We have no choice. This was the universe telling us it was time to do Twister. So here we are. I loved this movie as a kid. It's just one of those perfect, well-made 90s action movies. Lots of practical effects. Great performances. It's like a sturdy truck. It's like the sturdy truck in the movie that gets picked up and thrown around by the wind. That's how I see this movie. Hago, what do you think of Twister? It's good. I mean, you're right about that. Jan de Bont is uh, a very wonderfully... I don't want to say workmanlike, but he builds things that stand well. Mm. You know, speed. Well, I mean, speed, speed, dude. He was. He, it's really just speed. No, because he was a he was a cinematographer on a lot of stuff. Oh, actually. that's true. Like, yeah, yeah, he yeah. worked on Die Hard. Yeah, uh, so, Red October. Yeah. Anybody. Cujo. Who, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who 
anybody who had a hand in Die Hard is, you know, is okay by me. A friend of yours. Yeah. Any yawn, any yawn who worked on Die Hard is a yawn of mine. Uh, you know, I actually, um, like, meteorologic phenomenon are not, like, a pet project of mine. So I think I saw this, and, you know, I saw the cow, and I went, yeah. okay, it's a good one. I mean, it broke up Van Halen, and it got Fleetwood Mac back together. So, again, can't be all bad. <laughs> How are you feeling about the sequel? You're excited? You think you'll see it? I think it's priceless that Hollywood is so bankrupt that they finally just literally did the Jim Cameron writing an S over alien, but making it in the shape of a dollar <laughs> sign. Like how, I mean, they already did it with predator. They did predators, but, um, my God, like just stunningly, uh, yeah, this is where we are. Happy 2024, baby. <laughs> Fall of an empire. Let's do this. Both former cast members wanted to do this and take an active interest in it. Both Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt wanted to write and direct a sequel, and neither of them could make it happen for themselves. So that's what I find so infuriating. And then they went with option three. Somebody, I know we'll talk about who it is later. I don't know. I'm not very excited about it. I like the original so much. I'm worried that the sequel is going to be a disappointment. This is a, this is a rare pessimistic take from me. Dude, did you ever see Frailty? The Bill Paxton movie that he directed? Yeah. No, it's pretty good, actually. Like, it's not like, you know, it's not The Exorcist, but it's like for Bill, and he's great in it. So I'm like, oh, yeah, he's in it too. Yeah, he's like a haunting. Is there no end to that man's talent? I love Bill. We're going to no. talk about this more. I love Bill Paxton. Yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> we didn't deserve him. No, we didn't. And uh, yeah, I, I really, truly think that like um, he could have, he, it, we should have given him Twisters too. Who like, who yeah. botched yeah. that, you know? Well, lots to talk about. Let's dive in. From the nightmarish injury-filled set to the time Bill Paxson won over an entire town, the insane Dutch director who had physical altercations with his crew, and the bizarre animal noises recorded to make that horrific wind sound. And I'm not talking about Sammy Hagar. hey And of course, lest we forget the secret history of Philip Seymour Hoffman's balls, here's everything you didn't know about the film Twister. Hilariously, this movie was greenlit without a script, <laughs> which I mean, I guess kind of makes sense because I just remember snapshots of it, it, people being chased by a storm and that's kind of it. So that makes all the sense in the world. Respect but, to the woman whose name is about to come up because she's been in, in uh, the target of a lot of misogynist stuff for her involvement in Star Wars. But oh, Kathleen, Kathleen Kennedy. Kennedy. Yes, she works with the legendary special effects company, Industrial Light and Magic, who, I mean, that was George Lucas's company. Did he, yeah. did he found that or did he just work with them? I think so. Yeah. Wasn't he, didn't he found it to explicit, explicitly to make Star Wars, the stuff for Star oh, Wars? That's what I thought. Yeah. So the folks at Industrial Light and Magic put together a proof of concept visual effects clip to show the folks at Warner Brothers featuring early computer-generated imagery of a pickup truck driving towards a tornado, which was, at that very moment, spinning around a tractor, with one of the tractor's tires snapping off and smashing through the truck's windshield, which I think was later used for a scene in the film Twister. As Industrial Light and Magic producer Kathleen Kennedy told Wired in a 2015 roundtable discussion, the minute we took that shot into the studio and they saw it, they said, done, we want to make it. We didn't even have a script yet. Which, for a guy who studied four years of screenwriting at NYU, is like a dagger to my heart. I mean, ILM, just quick shout out to them. They are, like, 
literally it is a perfect name first of all what a great name good good yeah one of the i mean george lucas man when he was when he had when he was on when his he was hot on, he was on yeah god bless him um you know the just the number of firsts that they notched and like obviously up until like the 90s there's a lot of you know there is a lot of stuff that's just like first use of a motion controlled camera which is in a new hope actually and oh wow you know uh first fully computer generated character in young sherlock holmes in 1985 they did the first morphing sequence in willow um a lot of it is compositing a lot of it is stuff like that's less less interesting but like the way that they've actually been there at every step of how we render uh animals and humans on screen and you could literally see them do it in like 10 years of real time like the first thing that they did uh was the the thing in james cameron's the abyss like the the pseudopod creature that later became the t-1000 and then you know uh death becomes her actually is also a huge milestone in that because that was the first one where they attempted just the texture of human skin rather than just have it be like a, a sort of matte a matte thing um and then they kept racking up different ways of using the technology jumanji was the first uh computer generated cgi hair and fur uh for the digital lions and monkeys dragon heart was like the first fully computer generated main character that was before star wars that was 96 um the mummy was the first time that they had done a computer a, a character that had a full anatomy by layers so you could see him rot and i remember when i was oh, when we yeah. did the mummy i was watching some of the behind the scenes stuff and they were like this was not a fudge like we didn't we didn't half ass this where we would just like we figured out how a you know guts would look through someone's skin falling off we like built a human layer by layer and then made them rot which is sociopathic but um, yeah. you know incredible that's um, life all this <laughs> woof uh you know all this mocap stuff so yeah big shout out to ILM baby <laughs> I love how into effects you are. That's a whole field um, of research that I never movie, really considered myself movie, with. Movie, I just love movie magic, you know? Well, now we're going to get into the words, which is more my 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 realm, my area of expertise. The idea for what would become Twister made its way to Steven Spielberg, of course, mm-hmm. who hired Michael Crichton, the man who had written the novel behind Spielberg's recent blockbuster, Jurassic Park. Did he write the script for Jurassic Park 2 or just the novel? Uh, I know he wrote the novel and Lost World, but I think he might have been adapted because the guy who did Jurassic Park is just back for something else. Um, David Kep. Ah, okay. Helped with Crichton. But Michael Crichton, man, he also wrote the book that Westworld's based on. He also created the show ER, which I don't think I realized. Mm -hmm. That's insane. Uh, But Michael Crichton came as a package deal with his wife when it came to writing the Twister screenplay. Her name is Anne-Marie Martin. And together they were paid a reported $2.5 million. And that's 1996 money. So that's closer to $4 million today, which made Twister the most expensive screenplay ever written at the time. And Crichton said that the two bases for the script were a PBS documentary about storm chasers, which we'll talk about in a moment. And also the plot of the romantic comedy His Girl Friday, where our newspaper editor and his ex, who is engaged to another man, do one last job together. And the husband and wife duo, they were the only credited screenwriters on Twister, but the script was heavily reworked by a number of Hollywood script doctors, including Joss Whedon. Friend of the pod, Joss Whedon. No, he's not. Take that back. I, I know. I know he's not. <laughs> uh, he was paid $100,000 to work on the script for a few weeks until he came down with bronchitis and had to take a break. Or so he said. 
So they brought in Steven Zalian, who'd written the Oscar-winning Schindler's List, and also A Clear and Present Danger, who was also paid $100,000 to tinker with it. And hilariously, exactly none of his contributions made it into the finished film. He would later say, For three weeks, I wrote scenes and faxed them to Oklahoma where the film was being shot. Unbeknownst to me until much later, every page I sent was completely ignored because the director was perfectly happy with the script he already had. The production company was not. Anyway, the point is, there isn't a word I wrote for Twister that actually made it into that film. Cash that check, buddy. Nicely done. Joss Whedon would return, but then he left the production to leave for his honeymoon. He'd say, I turned in my last page on June 24th, 1995. That's the day they got married. I had to say, I hope you like this because I'm leaving the country now for my honeymoon. And Whedon, he would take a tepid view of Twister in later years, saying, there are things that worked and things that weren't the way I intended them. Womp womp. Let me ask you a question. What's that? Because we also talked about, uh, wasn't Armageddon that had like, 19 credited 12 credited writers on it something like that i think so yeah that, that was like the most that we had had on a movie that we've done as you mentioned you wasted a portion of your life studying <laughs> art um what generally is the the separating line for something to go to for, for it to be taken into like wga arbitration versus like a punch-up versus just like a paycheck job is it come down to the individual being like, I'm comfortable with just taking the check and walking away? Or is it them being like, no, I have a stake in this. I'd like to escalate it. And that's when the WGA gets involved. You know, I, I think it's the former. I don't really remember. I think that we were, I mean, in my program, I think we were mostly focused on just, you know, I, I mean, it, you know, it's like you, <laughs> just you, the art. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's like yeah how'd that turn out for you, and, buddy? And, 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 and nobody teaches you how to pay taxes or yeah. anything like that. It's like, uh, yeah, we, we, we were focused on storytelling and not like, yeah how to get an agent or yeah. how to sell things or how to not get ripped off. Um, so yeah, we didn't really spend a lot of time discussing those finer points of the business. So I, but I'm pretty sure it's more of a case by case. Like I feel good about this. This is what I think should happen. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Can I claim things? Do you want to claim that you co-wrote some of Twister? Yeah. Go for it. Knock yourself right. out. Start putting that in my <laughs> Twitter bio. <laughs> co-writer co co of Twister. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to start telling people I do uncredited punch-ups on things. <laughs> That's actually kind of a funny bit. Anytime somebody mentions something, you're like, oh, yeah, I did an uncredited punch-up on that. Like, anytime one of these, like, people are like, oh, what's your favorite movie of all time? And one of these, you know, f***ing AFI jerk-offs is like, mm, probably City Lights. And you're like, oh, I did an uncredited punch-up on that. <laughs> Like that's like the cinematic equivalent of getting one of those like Universal Life Church doctorates. Yeah, right. And then right. going around saying that you're a doctor, you wrote which one. I think is what Doctor Hunter S. Thompson did. Yeah, I know definitely several people who have done that. You can also become a necromancer, which is much cooler. That's uh, someone who raises corpses have... from the dead. Oh, I thought it was people who have sex with corpses. I was like, yeah, you could do that. <laughs> but... <laughs> And you shouldn't. Golf swing, break for commercial. How we're trying to get <laughs> who we're trying to get paid for this people magazine. <laughs> we have some notes, guys. Chemistry's great. Love the topics. Um fewer jokes about necro uh necrophilia, but also fewer jokes about necromancy. And I walk because I got my principles. If nothing else, he said, shaking a prescription drug bottle with one Advin left in it. If nothing else, Betty, I got my principles. <laughs> What the f*** were you talking about? Oh, wait, oh, this is actually, this is my favorite part. They got a script doctor who was, I think, chiefly responsible for punching up what they termed the car dialogue. 
This guy, Jeff Nathanson, he would later explain, I had the right dialogue for the cars. Like, look out, and here it comes, and get out of the way. Which is a class I missed in the NYU screenwriting department. Oh, what a magnificent industry. I'm sure he got six figures for that, too. However, after Twister was released, screenwriter Stephen Kessler declared that he'd written a screenplay called Catch the Wind years earlier, and Twister had stolen his work without permission or payment. Kessler took Steven Spielberg, Michael Crichton, and the studios Warner Brothers and Universal to court over the matter, demanding profits from Twister. The makers of Twister denied Kessler's charges, and he ultimately lost the case, but he wasn't the only screenwriter to claim that Twister plagiarized his work. Another writer, Daniel Perkins, sued over claims that his script Tornado Chasers, little on the nose, had been ripped off. <laughs> Get his the ass. Matter was, the matter was settled out of court, with both parties agreeing to keep the details of the settlement confidential. Why do they do that? Here's another business question for you. Okay. Is it like an industry settlement where they, like the classic fight club thing, where they do like calculate the cost of a recall versus the cost of a, a, a claim, like civil action or, or lawsuit? So they like, you know, let's just go without craft services for like a week and throw this guy 50 grand to get away from us. Is that literally like, is there an accountant whose job it is to just crunch that? Has to be, right? Oh, oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I think that, and I think a lot of the like, we don't speak about this is probably just like, look. I, I hate you, but just go away. Yeah. And like, like, I think it's literally the legal equivalent of let's never speak of this again. Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, NDAs are nuts. I mean, I'm probably yeah. violating one right now. Um, several. <laughs> but let's talk for a moment about the real non-disclosure <laughs> agreements. <laughs> Segway. Uh, let's talk for a moment about the real-life storm chasers that this movie is based on. We mentioned that the script takes some of its inspiration from a PBS documentary, Your Tax Dollars at Work, and I am not saying that sarcastically. No, yeah. And the writers consulted with actual scientists to make sure this film was as accurate as possible. In the movie, the intrepid heroes have a machine they call Dorothy, which is designed to get sucked up into a cyclone wind tunnel to release a number of sensors which help measure what's occurring within the storm which would aid in advanced detection techniques and save more lives. Dorothy is based on a real machine called Toto, I see what they did there, or Totable Tornado Observatory. It looks, again, surprisingly similar to the mechanism that you see in the movie with a unique barrel shape. Toto required two researchers to use it. It was placed in the back of a truck bed in a special apparatus, just like what we see in the film. There was a ton of potential risk with these researchers lugging around Toto, it was the side that it was a metal barrel and they were log dragging it into windstorms. It could have been struck by lightning. And uh, they could have also just been picked up and thrown around like that poor cow because of how close they had to get to the tornado to actually launch it. The closest that researchers ever got to really using it as it was intended was in April of 1984. Oh, man. They heard... They heard jump. And they, they decided, heard jump. you know what? Might as well jump. That was it. That's canon now. Uh, you know, the way that the internet works, I truly hope some, like, poor fingers-to-the-bone intern who works for, like, I don't know, the AI division of BuzzFeed.com is doing, like, 30 things you didn't know about Twisters, and that that fact gets picked up, like, <laughs> 10 years from now in the in the post-apocalyptic nucleus land. <laughs> We're all getting content feeds into our Neuralink, and it's just like, according to the podcast, TMI, <laughs> the people who invented the, the technology depicted in Twister were inspired. By Van Halen's 1984 single jump. I will be a happy, happy, irradiated corpse. Um, <laughs> where was I? Yes, Steve Smith and Lou Wicker of NSSL. Jordan, what's that? National 
storm severe, service. Severe Storms Laboratory. Oh. <laughs> Steve Smith. <laughs> Steve Smith and Lou Wicker of the. <laughs> you okay? I just like thought I had it. Steve Smith and Lou Wicker of the National Severe Storms Laboratory attempted to deploy Toto in Ardmore, Oklahoma, but the machine didn't have the right center of gravity to withstand the extreme winds. Sounds like does any of us? I was oh, you you that was my first one, and then I was gonna say like sounds like a a a, a Cracker Barrel I went to in Oklahoma, right? Am I, am I right, folks? Like, hey, neither of us are working at our best here. Um, <laughs> The Toto homepage shows pictures of the device lying comfortably on its side after the last failed attempt. Toto's retirement occurred because of how large and potentially dangerous it was to use so close to a deadly tornado. It was apparently never successfully deployed and was retired in 1987, nearly a full decade before the release of the film, which sort of bore its name. Per Wikipedia... May we all be retired without ever accomplishing our anything. goal. Or accomplishing anything useful. Um, initially... Steven Spielberg had planned to direct this movie himself. Instead, he busied himself on pre-production for another Michael Crichton joint, Jurassic Park 2 The Lost World. But even so, Spielberg remained on as executive producer. Among the other directors considered for Twister were his good pal Robert Zemeckis of Back to the Future, Forrest Gump, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her, Contact, Cast Away. Wow. And... That's an amazing... Oh, but that, okay, he had a great batting and... average until... A Sin Against Polar God. Express. The Polar Express. Polar Express. And that god-awful CGI. Yeah. There was John Badham, uh, or his... Oh, that's probably his British name. Here we call him John Badham. Um, Badham United. Next up for Badham United. Uh, John Badham, director of your beloved robot struck by lightning and gaining sentience movie, Short Circuit. Great movie. There's our boy Jimmy Cameron, who instead opted for... Uh, a pretty good investment called Titanic. Could call him that one, Jim. You're my boy. <laughs> abusive piece of shit. I mean, so is, so is the guy who ultimately wound up directing Twister, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. There were some reports that Tim Burton was in talks to do this, which I absolutely cannot see. Dude, the Danny Elfman score for <laughs> Twister would have been so obnoxious. Well, what would it sound like with the, with the cow float through the air? Marimbas and shit. But ultimately, the man who won out was our boy Jan de Bont, the recent director of Speed. Jan de Bont, whose name was <laughs> said... Be said the entire time, much like a track called Quest, and uh, who's the last director? Wolfgang Peterson yes. of of uh, Never Ending not Story, Large Boat, Never Ending Story, and uh, uh, Large Plane One, Large Plane Force One. Yeah, God, we've got a size thing here. We're kind of size queens here at TMI. Um, <laughs> lose another sponsor. <laughs> Just going down the list. Jan de Bont had been working as a cinematographer for 25 years before he directed his first feature. As we mentioned earlier, he was the DP, director of photography on blockbusters like Die Friggin' Hard, The Hunt for Red October, Cujo, before Speed, put him on the map, top of the shortlist for Hollywood action directors, the bus that couldn't slow down. He got the job on Twister after he left Hollywood's first attempt to make an American version of the iconic Japanese monster, the, the only one, Godzilla, my boy, um... <laughs> Man, PSA to anyone who listened to this who has any interest in Godzilla stuff. If you haven't seen Godzilla Minus One, 
go out and fix that, you dummy. It's an incredible movie. And man, did Jan avoid a bullet because that American Godzilla, I watched that in movie theater with my dad. I think it was like back to back, like we like a year after each other, we did that and like Batman and Robin and those really crystallized my, my they robbed me of my boyhood notion that movies could be not good. When Star Wars too, wasn't Star Wars around that same time, the new Star Wars? Yeah, but I was 12, so I was uh, like fine with Phantom Menace. Like Godzilla and like Batman and Robin as like a 10 year old, I was like, is this legal? Like you can make a movie that's that's bad. Papa, was this a bad movie? Yes, yes we've son. done this bit before, oh, yeah. and yes, and he was like, yes, that was. <laughs> to his credit, he was like, don't ever do this shit to me again, because when we went and saw Godzilla, but, um, Jan signed on. He helped develop a script that would have cost two hundred million dollars in nineteen ninety two money. Oh, that's for Godzilla. He signed on to do Godzilla. That was what that would have cost. Oh. Yeah, so the initial script for Godzilla was projected when Jan signed on at $200 million or $440 million today, or roughly what they paid for that last Indiana Jones movie. Uh, the studio, TriStar, decided that this was not going to happen, and when they failed to agree to Jan's budget, he walked and said, if I can't do Big Lizard, I'll do Big Storm. I'll do Big Wind. <laughs> no large wizard for Jan, large wind instead. Uh, Godzilla would eventually, as we all know, got made by Independence Day director Roland Emmerich in 1998, and we will never speak of it again. The, one of the funniest bits about that movie is that well, the next time Toho did a Godzilla movie, they made a point of having the American Godzilla get killed in like a laughing, <laughs> like like a version of that character, like just like it's like swatted off screen and like dies embarrassingly. <laughs> they just were like, no, we're gonna spend the extra couple million yen just to just to make our statement here. Uh, Spielberg pitched the idea to DeBont as a grim fairy tale where the monster comes out of dark clouds. Ooh. Mm, yeah, right? Spielberg. But, that's, that's, why, that's why he's Spielberg. Uh, that's why he's the goat. How tall is Jan DeBont? Uh, Price is Right rules. I'm going to say five foot seven. He shoved a camera assistant like into a mud puddle, so I, I'm assuming that he's he's got to be a little Napoleon. No, I, I've seen 5'10", oh, wow. but, you know, he's Dutch, so we'll take off a couple inches. <laughs> but Bont clutched his tiny little fists <laughs> i'm sorry just go ahead i don't have fucking have anything and now let's move on to casting among those up for consideration of the role of the female lead in twister no one Dr. Remember, twister no one remembers the names of the characters in this movie it's just it's just, twisterette it's helen hunt and bill Paxton. twisterina <laughs> no no is that close it's dr, dr. Jo Agent dr joe harding is, is Dr. The Agent Twister? <laughs> Dr. Clarice Twister? Dr. Agent Clarice Twister? Twister? Starling? Eh? Oh. Clearly, clearly movies have been greenlit on less. Yeah. Wait, well, an idea. This is one of them. Someone get me into, get me into McGee's. <laughs> I don't know. Dude, I'm so far out of the loop. Who even makes this garbage? Get me into Kevin Feige's boardroom, and I'm just going to write on his dry erase board, Twister meets Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> It's gonna be like Goodwill Hunting. You're just gonna like leave an incredible pitch on somebody's blackboard, and they're gonna try to like track down who it was. Get me that drunk janitor. <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> it's like oh. the other sister meets Air Force One. <laughs> There's a whole like idea of like, what if we just did like prestige things meets like 90s like absolute idiocy like <laughs> the other sister is really good i mean part of it is like uh you know that the, the, one of the few 
truly excellent jokes Kevin Smith has made is Goodwill Hunting to Hunting Season. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. So the lead character in Twister, for anyone who doesn't know, which is probably most people, Dr. Joe Harding. They were considering casting Laura Dern, mm. who had been in Spielberg's Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. which would have been great, but I guess coming so soon after Jurassic Park, yeah. They considered Bridget Fonda and Kate Mulgrew. I don't know Kate Mulgrew. Oh my God, it's Captain Janeway from uh, Star Trek Voyager. Kate Mulgrew would have been great, man. Janeway? Yeah. Yeah, that would have been cool. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Helen Hunt is also cool. She was Jan de Bont's first choice for the role. Apparently because he wanted a serious actor rather than a movie star. He was drawn to the fact that Helen Hunt had done a great deal of stage work, including a role in a 1990 production of The Taming of the Shrew done in Central Park alongside Tracy Ullman and Morgan Freeman. Which I had no idea about. Uh, No one thought it was a good idea to have a TV actress with some Shakespeare background anchor an action flick. But yeah, because her TV thing was mad about you. I feel like you just omitted that. Was that just to be assumed? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, sorry. My mistake, my mistake. Uh, Helen Hunt would later tell Entertainment Weekly, everyone was telling him, you can't put an $80 million movie in the line because Helen has to go back to her TV show in August. (laughs) Jan was like, I'm doing it. Devon actually liked the fact that she wasn't well known for her film work. He would later tell The Morning Call, big stars get in the way of the movie. Also, we felt that Helen Hunt had a certain 
stormy quality. Those are his <laughs> words. I wanted Helen because she reminds me of a whirlwind, Jan de Bon added. She can boss people around. She has a strong persona, which I like. Uh, hilariously, Helen Hunt wasn't interested in the part at first, saying, I just didn't know what I could really contribute acting-wise. But she changed her mind when DeBont and Spielberg took her to lunch at the Amblin Entertainment offices. To do Twister, Helen Hunt ultimately passed up working with John Travolta in John Woo's Broken Arrow, which I assume was quite the sacrifice. Was that a good movie? No, but John Woo's cool. Okay. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, hilariously, Hunt would claim that one of the people doing rewrites on the Twister script was also a story editor on Mad About You, and together they both worked on ratatat rom com dialogue between her and Bill Paxton's character in her trailer, which is why I would say that the relationship in this movie is a cut above 90s disaster movie fair. For sure. They have good, good chemistry, good dialogue, it works. And speaking of Mad About You, production on the fourth season of the show was delayed two and a half weeks when the Twister shoot ran long. And I realized that Paul Reiser, like, created that show, and I assume, like, owned a stake in it. So he was the one getting the call, being like, oh, Helen's going to be late, sorry. <laughs> but he was gracious about it. What's his appeal? Couldn't tell you. He's like Billy Crystal with, like... The... Less likability? I was going to say just, like, somehow more... Uh, palatable towards women, but mm, maybe less not. threatening. Yeah, yeah, no edge, less mugging. Mm, oh well, yeah, you know that's a check in my my column. And now to the undistinguished man in Twister, Doctor William Bill the Extreme Harding, who's Joe's estranged husband who is seeking her signature on their divorce papers. The original choice for the role was who else? Tom Hanks, who has a near perfect record when it comes to 90s movies fantasy casting every movie we've talked about on here when harry met sally oh that's 80s hook i believe i just so many movies he was his first call for like 25 years yeah yeah also considered were your beloved kurt russell hell yeah how do you feel about that it would have been Chase amazing are you kidding me just like yeah dude, he's good in anything if you just had put put him up against an unbeatable unidentifiable odd and have him just set that jaw would have done five five hundred mil foreign and domestic. Great highest grossing film of all time. How do you feel about Michael Keaton, who was also considered? <laughs> I love Keaton. He, Keaton's good at Batman because he's squirrely and weird and they don't actually make him fight at all. But like <laughs> he's not a he's nothing about that man screams action to me. I mean Nope. Well, I guess well Bill Paxton. No, you're right. I guess Bill Paxton. Paxton had been an alien, dude. He'd been yeah, an alien. Right. Come on, man. You're and absolutely right. He, to that day, at this point, he had been killed by an alien, a predator, and a Terminator. That's a great trivia question. And, yeah. That's like a pub trivia, like tiebreaker question right yeah. there. That's really good. <laughs> That's really good. Uh, well, he actually, speaking of which, got the gig, Bill Paxton, that is, got the gig on the recommendation of James Cameron, who, as you mentioned, worked with him on Aliens. And true lies. And this is where I'm legally obligated to remind listeners that Bill Paxton both waved at JFK's motorcade the day he was assassinated in Texas and dove on Titanic with James Cameron. And this pretty much makes him my hero. This makes you my new best friend. If you want to one-up anyone who thinks they got you with that Paxton question, if you're like, hey, do you know uh, the only actor who's been killed by you know an alien, a predator, and a, and a Terminator? And they're like, oh, duh, Bill Paxton. Do you want to know how to flex them? And be like, do you know the makeup artist that links all of those? Oh, Stan Winston, baby. 
Predator and Terminator. Can you do something else we did? I mean, almost everything. Yeah. Dan Winston was on the, all kinds the thing? of shit. That wasn't the thing. Uh, yeah, he was. Paxton had just starred alongside Tom Hanks in Apollo 13, and the clothes that he wears in Twister are supposedly the same ones that Hanks selected for his wardrobe when, I guess, he was doing tests for Twister? Not quite sure how that works. I guess Hanks went further along in the uh, in the process than uh, Our boy Billy I would have imagined. Yeah. Paxton would later recall his brief from director Jan de Bont. He kept asking, how close can I put you to one of these tornadoes? That's all he wanted to talk about. I'm thinking, oh boy, we'll all be killed. <laughs> he was not wrong. <laughs> we'll get more about the incredible danger the actors were in when making this movie in a little bit. But still more casting. The production initially wanted Mira Sorvino, who was fresh off her Oscar win, to play the part of Bill's fiance, the high-strung therapist, Melissa Reeves. Or maybe she's normally strung and be being put in an insane situation, being dumped in the middle of a tornado zone. So uh, scratch that. But unfortunately, Jan de Bont wanted Mira Sorvino to dye her hair brown, presumably to telegraph the differences between her and Helen Hunt's character, who was blonde. But Servina refused, and so she was out in favor of the brunette actress Jamie Gertz. I, I don't know much about her. Helen Hunt would later say that the original version of the script she was given had much more sniping between her character and this girlfriend character, which, as we all know, is an old, tired trope. Helen Hunt told Vulture for the 2020 piece, Helen Hunt answers every question we have about Twister. There was a draft that I saw where the women were sort of catty with each other. And I didn't at that point know that I had a feminist agenda, which I do. I just <laughs> knew that it wouldn't be fun to watch, and I didn't want to play it. The technical term would be yucky. I just raised my hand and said, there's a better way. And nobody said, no, you have to do it that way. Good for her. That's funny. I didn't know at that point that I had a feminist agenda. Yeah. <laughs> her quotes are great her quotes could like almost be read in like a groucho Marx. like <laughs> yeah no she's really funny so they narrowly avoided one old screenplay trope but they did not avoid the stereotype of having a rich british jerk as the villain we are talking about dr jonas miller the storm chasing rival of joe and bill and if i recall they had all worked together at some point and then he went and got corporate sponsors or some kind of dirty money that he used to build a knockoff version of Bill Paxton's Dorothy idea. I think that was how that went. Anyway, the part was offered to a pre-house Hugh Laurie, which I, that would have been cool. I would have liked that. Yeah, Especially if he got to play piano at one point. In the in Twister? In Twister? Yeah. Oh, that would have been funny. He's a great piano player, man. He's an incredible piano player, yeah. I know. Just let him play piano and everything. It's Hugh Laurie. I love Hugh Laurie. No, you actually, he's English. You know that, mm -hmm. right? I'm worried that I'm, I'm shocked. That I watched you, uh... a couple of bits of Fry and Laurie when I was at home on my parents' Brit box. Oh, it's real good. Bit of Fry and Laurie is incredible. The Jeeves and Wooster might be too English for you, but I loved. Uh, uh... Yeah, no, this wasn't an invite. <laughs> <laughs> incredible episode of House where uh, Dave Matthews is the guest <laughs> and uh, and he plays. Um... Dave Matthews is like some kind of savant who can immediately play on the piano, whatever he hears. And so Hugh Laurie just starts like playing all this complex stuff. And yeah, it's a great episode. Anyway, Hugh Laurie did not get the part of a bad guy in Twister. Neither did Alec Baldwin, who would have been an incredible, though very different choice. Ultimately, they went with Carrie 
I still can never say his name. Carrie Elwes, the guy from The Princess Bride and Robin Hood Men in Tights. We just watched Liar Liar. Oh, yeah, that's right. Wow, he was the bad guy in a lot of... They just needed someone who was like the rogue. They just needed someone who was like just handsome enough because he's like not he's like not Brad Pitt handsome where you're like, my God, put it away, man. But like you look at him. I mean, he's obviously beautiful as Wesley, but like in Liar Liar, he just like looks like a vaguely handsome dude. who They just make him like the most annoying guy in the world. But yeah, he looks a lot like um, who's the swashbuckling actor? Errol Uh, Flynn. That's why Errol Flynn. Pretty sure that's why he was cast in Princess Bride, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. He's also like a British Nepo baby, too. Is he? His parents are rich or famous or one of the two. Are you just saying that because he's English? I mean, it's more more statistically likely than not over there. Let's see. It's on his Wikipedia page. I remember looking this up at one point. Oh, yeah. Portrait painter Dominic Ewes is his father. An interior designer and socialite, Tessa Kennedy. Whenever they put your profession as socialite, socialite. Yep. That's, that's usually a pretty big red flag. Oh, wow. One of his relatives is the British miner John Elwes, who is the inspiration for Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. Wow. That's a great thing to have in your family tree. Yeah. I'm related to the biggest literary prick of all time. (laughs) So that's the bad guy. And now we're going to go to the goodest guy of this whole movie, Dusty. I didn't know his name, but you definitely know Philip Seymour Hoffman. Have a drink, the, the, pal. The, the the lovable, yeah. <laughs> the lovable slacker of the Storm Chasers. Apparently, Garth Brooks was potentially offered... He, he was offered a role in Twister. Some sources have said it was Dusty, the part that ultimately went to Philip Seymour Hoffman. I've also seen reports that the role that Garth Brooks was offered may have been the Bill Paxton character... Which makes a lot of sense. I can kind of see that they both, Bill Paxton's Texan. I don't know where Garth Book's from, but could very well be Texas. I I, I could see him playing the lead in in Twister. Also, I've seen reports that Garth Brooks was offered the role of the villain in this movie. I'm not sure. Specifics on the role are vague, but this came out (laughs) years later in a... (laughs) Well, no, it gets better. The fact that Garth Brooks was offered a role in Twister at all came out years later in a lawsuit filed against Garth by his longtime business partner. And in the suit, his ex-business partner claimed that Steven Spielberg had sent Garth Brooks the script for Twister, but, quote, Brooks passed on that film, saying the star of the film was the tornado, (laughs) and Brooks wanted to be the star. God, that's so funny. Uh, He also allegedly, according to the suit, turned down a role in Saving Private Ryan, Supposedly for a similar reason. The war is the star. (laughs) In any event, the role of Dusty went to Philip Seymour Hoffman. And when later asked about his reasons for taking the role, Philip Seymour Hoffman told Esquire, I was living in L.A. at the time, and I knew that if I took that job, I'd be able to move back to New York. Don't know why that is, but so it was. Uh, This is probably more of a me thing, but my brain accidentally swaps him and the Harry Stoner dude from Titanic. I guess I'm getting my rough around the edges, Bill Paxton adjacent technician characters confused. Well, with or without the presence of one Garth Brooks, shooting began in 1995. The original plan was to film Twister in the United Kingdom and California, two areas not usually known for their tornadoes or ones that (laughs) resemble the American Midwest in really any way, shape, or form. But director Jan DeBont insisted on shooting on location in Oklahoma, boasting that this could be the last great action movie not shot on a soundstage. Eh, yeah, not, not that far off. They filmed all over the state, but the main location that they chose was the small town of Wakita, population 344. 
serves as the hotown. It's hotown, hotown. It serves as the hometown of Lois Smith's character Meg, uh, which gets leveled by an F four tornado. The town was chosen because there had been a hailstorm two years earlier that destroyed many of the homes. Many remained simply unfixed, and there was still debris laying everywhere. Producers purchased and then leveled eight blocks of existing houses, as well as flattening 30 homes that had been built for the shoot. Greatest industry in the world, baby. <laughs> Apparently, the destruction of the town was so convincing that an unrelated video crew flying overhead landed their helicopter down to investigate. Given That's like uh, in Cool Hand Luke when they created a prison camp so unappealing that it was the state took notice of it. And <laughs> was like, guys... <laughs> that's right uh, but given the size of Wakita production became a townwide affair Bill Paxton fostered goodwill as he did everywhere by busting out a football soon after arrival and tossing it around with the locals many of the residents signed up to be extras earning the princely sum of $100 a day the town was tiny but mighty and filled with civic pride the residents main concern was that the film would have featured a sex scene which they thought would reflect poorly on their town is this the town from Footloose? Yeah, we don't have sex here in Wakita. <laughs> uh, the locals insisted on the town's name being used, and one citizen even requested that they include a shot of the water tower with the word Wakita painted on the side. Despite the wanton acts of emotional terrorism that the director inflicted on his actors, which we'll cover in a moment, relations were warm between the production and the citizens of Wakita. Locals interviewed by the Oklahoman noted that the crew did an excellent job of clearing up the rubble and even planted new trees. Aww. In appreciation, the town later opened a Twister movie museum. Staffed by volunteers, it's free to visit and features props, including one of the Dorothy machines, bricks from the wrecked buildings, and a Twister-branded pinball machine donated by Paxton himself. The actor, rep <laughs> the actor reportedly donated numerous hand... <laughs> Just the pinball machine. That was That's what did it for you, huh? It was. It's so good. Uh, the, the actor... <laughs> The actor reportedly donated numerous objects over the years, including the football mentioned earlier, each with a handwritten note. Oh. But that's not even the most heartwarming aspect of the film's Oklahoma-based production. They were shooting when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred, and when they received word, they suspended production so that the cast and crew could assist with recovery efforts. I'd just like to add that the, uh, the Twister Museum also has a five-block walking tour included of different sites where they shot around town. Have you been there? Never in Wakita, check it out. Have you been there? <laughs> no. <laughs> just This is the best sponsor I could get. <laughs> Wakita. When you're here, you're family. <laughs> Literally. Uh, production moved to Iowa as the seasons changed, and these shoots were not easy, due in large part to the weather. Recalling the experience to the New York Times in 1996, director Yann DeBont said that he and the 350-person crew were up against the floods and the actual tornadoes that beset the state. It was like nothing I've encountered in my life, he said. We kept getting stuck in mud. The whole thing was like a moving circus around dirt roads. Uh, this coupled with what have been described as the battalion of wind machines artificially generating 200 mile per hour gusts of winds made life less than pleasant for the actors in the film. As Yann DeMont anonymously added during an interview with The Morning Call, when they added rain to the mix, he said they didn't have to act anymore. <laughs> Stunt doubles were rarely used. And though the actors used earplugs, they did not use eye protection. After every shot, someone would come around with the visine, Hunt later explained. General dryness, redness, and irritability, clear eyes. That was their tagline, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, were not the only eye injuries that occurred on set. Both Hunt and Paxton were temporarily blinded when giant set lights burned their retinas. 
Paxton told EW, those lights were like sunballs. They had to pump light into the cab to get exposure down to make the sky look behind us look dark and stormy because it was too bright outside. And these things literally sunburned our eyeballs. I got back to my room. I couldn't see. For two days, they needed to use eye drops and wear glasses. And still, there were more eye injuries. Hunt and Paxton spent several hours shooting a scene in an irrigation ditch, which they soon dubbed the Irritation Ditch. Got their asses. <laughs> the wind and the rain blew mud and dirt and filth into their eyes, requiring them to get hepatitis shots just to be on the safe side. Bill Paxton had just wrapped filming on Apollo 13, which required that he be flown in the Zero-G creating KC-135 weightless trainer, also known as the Vomit Comet. But according to him, Twister was even more of a slog. As he asked readers of the morning call, I mean, what would you rather do? Throw up or be hit in the head real hard with a piece of ice? Well, let's ask our listeners. Hugo, what would you rather do? How big's the ice? Mm, I'm going to say... Like softball? Softball, yeah. Probably throw up. But I really hate throwing up. Yeah, I do too. It means you can get another meal. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hunt had an even worse time due to the repeated head injuries she suffered on the set. During the mud scene, she hit her head on the bridge while they were hiding under it. In the scene where she opened the car door while driving through a cornfield, the door simply swung back on her and domed her in the head. She would describe the shoot to Entertainment Weekly as brutal. Director Jan de Bont was unsympathetic. When asked about Hunt's frequent injuries, one of which reportedly led to a concussion, he had this to say of his leading lady. I love Helen to death, but, you know, she can also be a little bit clumsy. Hunt had some choice words for him when she heard this. The guy burned my retinas. But I'm clumsy? Perhaps, needless to say, they did not work together again. Her quotes are so good. It's again, it's like you, re- you read them like Groucho Marx. God, burn my retinas and I'm clumsy? Yeah. Like, it, <laughs> I guess it's the mad about you thing. Uh, Yen Bond, as we alluded to earlier, was kind of a not guy, nice. He wasn't the greatest. He was a piece of shit on the set. Members Dutch. of the crew. <laughs> Remember, what, what's the, was it? No, I can't say that. Because Jim, when when Jim Cameron gets mad, Midge comes out, and when oh, Yan gets yeah. mad, Nadge. <laughs> it's cutting it close. Members of the crew felt the director was quote out of control. Matters came to a head five weeks into the shoot when he struck a camera o- operator in anger for blocking a complicated shot involving wind machines and pushed him into the mud. His relationship with the director of photography Don Burgess also deteriorated, with the director angrily calling them all incompetent. As a result, Burgess and the entire 20-person camera crew quit in protest. Like in the middle, like the cast were shocked. Like they just walk off the set. Burgess would later claim that DeBont didn't know what he wanted till he saw it. He would shoot one direction with all the equipment behind the view of the camera, and then he'd want to shoot the other direction right away, and we'd have to move everything, and he'd get angry that we took too long. And it was always everybody else's fault, never his. DeBont, for his part, denied calling the team incompetent and explained to Entertainment Weekly that he pushed the assistant in a bout of frustration. With the wind machines, it was very loud, he said, so the crew had to watch my hand signals. I cued action, and he walked right in the middle of the scene. We kept losing good performances because of stupid things like that. I don't think I'm a hothead, but I do believe you have to be passionate. These crews get paid well, and when they screw up, I'm going to call them on it. Cinematographer Jack N. Green and his crew took over, but then Green was hospitalized with an injury from an on-set accident. When a hydraulic house set used in the scene in which Joe and Bill rescue Meg and her dog from her tornado-destroyed home in Waukita. The house, designed to collapse on cue, was mistakenly activated with Jack Green inside of it. <laughs> a rigged ceiling hit him in the head and injured his back, requiring him to be hospitalized. I feel like I've had a dream about my house eating me before. Hmm. So, 
That sucks for him. At that point, Devon, a former cinematographer, took over his own director of photography for the rest of the shoot, which I think was at least closer to the end of it than the beginning. The environment became so hostile that according to sources, crew members considered printing t-shirts emblazed with the director's favorite expletive. F***ing hell sh**. That's almost as good as on um, oh, yeah. when uh, when uh, Ridley Scott was making um, Blade Runner and uh, he gave an interview saying, complaining about American crews and how they were uppity and, and British crews would simply say, yes, governor, and get it done where American crews wanted to argue with you. So the American crews all got t-shirts that said, yes, governor. <laughs> Isn't this like a whole cottage industry? Wasn't there something on Titanic yeah. too of like disgruntled crews passive aggressively making t-shirts? For sure. So good. And now for a different kind of violence, Philip Seymour Hoffman's <laughs> balls. Yes, there is a scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, clad in shorts and other slacker attire, laughs heartily. Unfortunately, when he does so, he lifts a leg and one of his testicles pops out of his shorts. This shot was included in early cuts of the film until someone mercifully caught it. And as a result, the CGI team, who already had their hands full with, you know, all the tornado stuff, was called in to digitally erase PSH's offending balls, thus avoiding an R rating to this otherwise PG-13 movie. <laughs> Release the ball cut. I wonder if, I mean, everybody's got their turning point, right? Who's do you <laughs> think that was that ended a career? Some guy's like real jazz and working at ILM and Jan de Bont storms in. He's like, ah, hey, we got you. We need you to uh, uh, digitally erase uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's balls. <laughs> the guy went home and rethought his life. <laughs> went to work on an oil rig. This is the cigar chopping executive reading the line items for all the CGI yeah. work. What's it? What's this one? Five grand to erase Seymour Hoffman's balls? <laughs> I paid for those balls. Those balls are gonna win him an Oscar someday. <laughs> we didn't get Garth Brooks. <laughs> we keep Hoffman's balls. It's one of the best uses of the cigar shopping executive we've had in a while. <laughs> uh, that was not the only last minute change to the film. The prologue scene in which Joe witnesses her father getting sucked up into a cyclone as he desperately tries to hold the door to their storm shelter was added at the very last minute. It's a classic filmmaking technique to provide backstory and motivation for the main character, a la Jodie Foster losing her astronomy-loving dad in contact. Initially, they shot a nightmare sequence, which was going to be intercut throughout the film in order to give insight into the haunted state of mind of Helen Hunt's character. But they realized during editing that this didn't really work, so they hastily wrote an introductory scene and shot it during last-minute reshoots. The young version of Helen Hunt's character in these scenes is played by Alexa Vega, who went on to appear in Spy Kids. Mm. Millennial childhood favorite Spy Kids. Did you know that... I, I, I love this. Alexa Vega married a guy named Pina Vega. So she's now Alexa Pina Vega. I thought that... But wouldn't it that, be Alexa Pina Vega Vega? I, I know. I think she... That's what I thought. I thought maybe the guy's name was Pina. And so she just like had an irrational phobia of hyphens. So she just smashed the two names together. But no, that's like... That's like you... If you change your name to like Alex Sackheigl or something. Who's the Sack? I don't know. Somebody, if you married somebody that had the last name of Sack and you. <laughs> Ryuichi Sakamoto? Sakago. Deceased yeah. Japanese minimalist composer Ryu Ryuichi Sakamoto. 
It was uh, a, I guess he's it, not it really was, a minimalist. No, it was a bad comparison, but isn't that weird? Like somebody had a really specific last name and then they married somebody who... Okay. It's like Julia Gulia on Wedding Singer, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. wonder if I'll leave that. I thought we'd get more mileage out of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be honest. I thought that one would pop more. One of the most striking moments in Twister, aside from the cow, which I assume we'll talk about at some point, is the scene at the drive-in movie where Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is playing. In the ringer's retrospective on effects used in Twister, which you should really read. You would love that piece, Heigl. Industrial Light and Magic's Ben Snow said that he was desperate to work on this specific scene. He said, we wanted to project the image of the film onto the tornado itself. It's so great. It's, of course, the here's Johnny scene, and you've got Shelley Duvall freaking out, and you've got the knife being plunged in. It's so wonderful. And Jan DeBont said, let's use The Shining. It was a dream come true scene. You had to take the film footage and convert it into little texture maps and then project that, which was quite an accomplishment back in 1996. Uh, Bizarrely, I love this. In 1996, the year Twister came out, an Ontario drive-in theater was destroyed by a tornado mere hours before a scheduled screening of Twister. This incident later evolved into a myth that the Twister actually came when the movie Twister was being screened, which sadly was just an urban legend. But it gets weirder. On May 10th, 2010, the 14th anniversary of Twister's release in the United States, a tornado destroyed a farmhouse in Fairfax, Oklahoma, where numerous scenes of the film were shot. The house that was used in the movie Twister was destroyed by a Twister on the anniversary of its release. I think that's crazy. The owner of the home, a former Oklahoma state senator named J. Barry Harrison, commented that the tornado appeared eerily similar to the fictitious one in the film. That was a deep state hit, and I actually did that. I killed that guy. He's alive. He gave a quote. (laughs) That joke didn't work. Um, where were we? On the topic of classic Hollywood films that were helmed by abusive directors who made life hell for their actors, a la The Shining and Twister itself, there are several other references to movies with nightmarish productions slipped into Twister. For example, the oil truck seen flying around the tornado bears the same name, Benthic Petroleum, which is the company in James Cameron's underwater epic, The Abyss, uh, where Ed Harris has taken a blood oath to never speak of the making of that film again. Because it was Uh, so horrendous like didn't he kill someone during that production uh, someone was yeah like someone was like li- clinically dead um <laughs> god jim cameron man the greatest of all time <laughs> you talk about a nietzsche and Ubermensch in the pursuit of art um, bing bong bing greatest bong. director in the world baby <laughs> uh the name of the instrument package dorothy is did you really feel it was necessary to put this in jordan do you really feel necessary to call attention to the fact that Dorothy is a character in The Wizard of Oz, a film that revolves prominently around tornadoes? Folks, hey, hey, everyone. Everyone, listen to too much information. Jordan wants you to know this really specific and obscure fact. Fuck out of my podcast. You sickened me. Uh, Aunt Maggie is watching uh, the movie at the time the tornado hits her house because that wasn't on the nose enough. No, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and Young Joe's Cairn Terrier is the same breed as Toto in the Judy Garland movie. Classic whimsical <laughs> production of Golden Age Hollywood where Judy Garland was fed more pills than 
1950s British housewife and sexually assaulted by little people. Let's talk about something more uplifting. Cows. Arguably Getting uplifted. Okay. <laughs> hey Arguably the funniest scene in the movies when the cows come flying through the air and a stunned Helen Hunt can only offer a play-by-play. Cow. <laughs> Another cow. And then Bill Paxton with one of the all-time great grips. I think that's the same cow. <laughs> the effect was obviously achieved through CGI. I Do you remember the movie theater SETI standees? That came out in the lobby that had the cow like jutting out of the of no. the post. Oh, I remember seeing those. Um, funnily enough, that cow is actually based on a zebra from uh, 1995's Jumanji. Yeah, it was like the, in the way CGI works, they have like a standard shape or something gets altered. Yeah, I, hoofed, I don't know how it hoofed works, model but... to base it on. Yes, 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 um, yes. But the cow was inspired by real events. During an interview with VFX Blog in 2016, visual effects supervisor Stefan Fangmir said, It was based on actual real occurrences. Farmers, after a tornado had gone through, were reporting finding their cows miles and miles away from the field where they had last seen them. Alive? They lived, I guess. I mean, well, he didn't specify. I'm choosing to believe. No. Because I don't want Peter to paint our podcast red, so I, I'm going to say that it, they survived. If... Peter painted a pod of pickled pepper podcasts pink. How much wood would that wood chuck chuck? We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. On the topic of special effects, we should talk about The Wind. 
No, not Warren Zevon's elegiac last record, a devastating <laughs> monument to slowly dying and putting one last stamp on the world before you exit it, but the actual wind in Twister. We already talked about the wind machines and the jet engines that blew gusts of more than 200 miles an hour. That provided the look for the wind, but the sound of the wind was achieved by using the unorthodox method of manipulating a recording of a camel's moan and mixing it with a lion's growl and a tiger's snarl. I love that stuff, man. It's yeah, like in Silence yeah. of the Lambs where they're like mixing whale sounds and stuff into the into the sub mix just to be like, this is going to sound like hell. Um, <laughs> according to author Kay Davidson's book, Twister, The Science of Tornadoes and the Making of a Natural Disaster Movie, to make new and different wind sounds, they constructed a box filled with chicken wire, stuck a microphone inside, and placed it on top of a car. Then they rolled the car downhill turning the engine off so that it wouldn't interfere with the sound recording. That rules. That's like uh, David Lynch's buddy, Alan Splett, Oscar punchline, Alan Splett, trailblazing sound designer, Alan Splett, being like off grid because he was in the remote highlands of Scotland recording wind. That's right. We used to be a proper country. And speaking of going downhill, (laughs) we must talk about the soundtrack of this movie, which features... Less than stellar work from two gargantuan selling bands of the 70s and 80s, Van Halen and Fleetwood Mac, most of Fleetwood Mac. It's not, it wasn't technically Fleetwood Mac. Uh, hilariously, the Twister soundtrack reunited one of these musical partnerships and destroyed the other. Oh, hi, you got to talk about Van Halen. This is, this is so you. Well, as we mentioned in the just episode, the episode we just did about Van Halen's 1984, uh, Van Halen was on their second frontman, Sammy Hagar. Uh, at the time, and they contributed the song Humans Being. This is I can't say that. Humans Being, yeah. No. It's like a it's a wordplay, right? Somebody thought it's they were being play, clever. But it's, but it's really stupid wordplay. <laughs> the band had just gotten a new manager who happened to be Alex Van Halen's brother-in-law. <laughs> Family and business, never a losing combination. <laughs> Sammy Hagar didn't get along with him very well and especially didn't appreciate his suggestion that the band cut into their badly needed post-tour break to record this song for a Bill Paxton movie about the wind. Eddie and Alex were eager to do it, but Sammy wanted to take some time off to recuperate and spend time with his wife, who was just about to give birth. Eddie and Al went right into the studio, Hagar claimed in 1997. They said they had to make money, but I said, whoa, are you crazy? We're not hurting for money. I wanted to spend two months with my new baby, then make another record. But Eddie said, I'm frustrated because you never do what I ask you to do. To be fair, that was the same reason he was frustrated with David Lee Roth. Uh, (laughs) Sammy claims that they pressured him into recording the new song, Human Being. Humans Being. What the f*** is the name of this song, Jordan? Humans Being. Okay. (laughs) Sammy claims that they pressured him into recording the new song, Humans Being, for the soundtrack. (laughs) But the sessions were painful all the way through. He wanted to record the vocals in Hawaii, where he and his wife were staying as she prepared to give birth to their baby, but the band wanted him to record the vocals at their 5150 studios in L.A., and it took him three separate trips to L.A. to nail it down. As a reminder, 5150 Studios is in Eddie Van Halen's backyard. Uh, Making matters worse, at the last minute, Eddie scrapped another song that he and Sammy had been writing together, a ballad called Between Us Two. These are just worse and worse, huh? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Requiring Sammy to come back once again and extend humans being to make it longer? Were they paid by the minute? I I know. I was trying to figure that out. Yeah, I don't really understand. Maybe it was... I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) He came in an hour and a half before his flight, wrote two new verses, banged out the additional recordings, and left. 
Then it turned out the band required an additional song after all, and Eddie tried to get him back to finish Between Us Two again. Sammy refused, and the Van Halen brothers recorded an instrumental instead, a chain of events that would ultimately lead to Sammy's departure from the band. Details of the final split are with anything in the Van Halen uh, mythos disputed, but it apparently ended with a phone call on Father's Day 1996. (laughs) In Eddie's version, he called Sammy and read him the riot act. If you want to make another record or do another tour, you've got to be a team player. Van Halen is a band. Not the Sammy Hagar show, not the Eddie Van Halen, Alex Van Halen, or Michael Anthony show. He recalled in an interview with Guitar World. Sammy apparently responded by saying, I'm f***ing frustrated. I want to go back to being a solo artist. Eddie thanked him for his honesty, and with minimal fury, supposedly said, Well, you can't be in a band and do that too, so see ya. (laughs) And so Sammy quit in a huff to go back to being Sammy Hagar. Uh, Sammy, though, disputes this version and said that he was fired. And adding insult to injury, he said he was horrified by how quickly that they brought David Lee Roth back into the band to complete the two new songs for the 1996 Greatest Hits compilation. Uh, Which was, if I recall correctly, in and of itself a giant sticking point because when they renegotiated the creation of that, they, like, everybody got a higher royalty rate than David Lee Roth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What a hilarious, what a hilarious band. Hagar said of this, man, that's worse than sleeping with the enemy. We bumped heads, and the next thing I know, Eddie calls and David Lee Roth is back. Roth or Hagar, whichever one of them was in the band at this point, would soon be replaced by Gary Sharon of Extreme. But that's another story. (laughs) What if there's a Gary Sharon soundboard? Other artists featured on the Twister soundtrack include Tori Amos, Katie Lang, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Shania Twain, and Buckingham Knicks. Woo! Although in 1996, it was more like Knicks Buckingham. This was the pair's first time back together since reuniting someone under duress at Bill Clinton's request for his inauguration in 1993. More to the point, this was Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham's first time reuniting on record since 1987's Tango in the Night with sessions that ended with Lindsay quitting the band, feuding with Stevie, and tossing her over the hood of his car, I believe with his hands around her neck? Maybe, maybe not. That might have been the time he tried to strangle the engineer during uh, the recording of Rumors. I forget, but... What a great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Stevie was asked to provide a song for the soundtrack to Twister, and she decided to call in Buckingham to produce it, and also Mick Fleetwood to play drums. Buckingham ultimately shared vocals with Stevie, which went a long way towards thawing their relations and leading to their 1997 reunion concert and live album, The Dance, with that incredible version of Silver Springs. And I didn't realize that this would lead to a 21-year reunion between Buckingham and Nick's, which is their longest unbroken time together. Did you know that? Aw. Yeah. It all came to a crashing end in 2018 when Nick's ousted him from the band in favor of Chex's Notes, the guys from Crowded House, and the Heartbreakers. The release day for Twister was pushed up a week in order to avoid competition with Paramount's Mission Impossible two weeks later, and this caused even more headaches for the visual effects folks at Industrial Light and Magic, who were already working overtime to try to CGI out all of the blue skies that had been in the background during filming since that sort of spoils the whole tornado effect, and the aforementioned Philip Seymour Hoffman's balls. 
Industrial Light and Magic had originally been on the hook to do digital sky replacements on 150 shots, but Jan de Bont ultimately needed them to double that number. This increased workload put everybody under a time crunch to meet the delivery date set by Warner Brothers. Visual effects producer Kim Bromley Carson described it to Entertainment Weekly as as close to drop dead as it gets. But ultimately, they made it in time for the premiere, which was adorably held at a theater at an Oklahoma City mall. The film would go on to receive a PG-13 rating from the Motion Picture Association of America due to, quote, intense depiction of very bad weather. (laughs) That's got to be... That's got to be one of the best ones I've ever heard. Yep. Mm-hmm. Very, in, very bad weather. Good well, for speaking them. of great, speaking of great phrases, producers apparently originally intended to release Twister with the tagline, "It sucks." <laughs> I, I, I I've checked this. Apparently, that's for real. But sadly, they were dissuaded from doing so when it occurred to them that this would merely provide ammo for critics who weren't especially positive about the movie. Instead, they opted for the dark side of nature, which is nowhere near as good. On the topic of marketing snafus, Jamie Gertz, who's Bill Paxton's girlfriend in the movie, recalled a hilarious incident that occurred during interviews to promote the movie. She told the AV Club, the biggest thing I remember from when we were doing press for the film was that we went on Oprah. We came on individually, and we were talking about how tough it was to shoot. We get debris in our eyes and the wind machines and we have to use eye wash. And and sometimes when we were in the makeup trailer, we'd have to turn off the electricity because we were so close to an electrical storm and they didn't want to get electrocuted, blah, blah, blah. And then Oprah breaks for commercials and then she comes back and says, and now for survivors of real twisters. <laughs> so here are all these actors, these dopey actors on stage. And now you have all these people who are like, I was burned. Lightning hit me. And we're like, oh, no, that that didn't happen to us. It was just humiliating. Here are these real survivors of Twisters, and we're just the pretend movie version. Helen Hunt also had a funny moment during the press tour. She said that when they were doing some show, might have even been Oprah, they took questions from the audience, and one woman asked Hunt why her character wouldn't put her hair up on a ponytail when she was in the middle of a tornado. Apparently the whole movie, her hair is down. To which Hunt apparently replied, screw you, don't get technical with me. <laughs> I'm Helen Hunt, bitch. <laughs> Twister was a gargantuan success at the box office, sucking in nearly half a billion worldwide. <laughs> this wasn't bad considering the budget was bad. <laughs> this wasn't bad considering... Con- blowing in? I don't This wasn't bad considering the budget was 90 million, making it one of the most expensive movies in the 90s, as per Yann Debont's wishes. Uh, only Independence Day made more money in 1996 at $817.4 million. Uh, yeah, you figure, what, marketing's twice that? Mm-hmm. So, you know, 180 mil all told, maybe call it 250 just for laughs, making almost half a bill. Good for them. Roger Ebert, as was his wont, was something of a savage in his review of this well-made, generally well-meaning, if slightly dumb, movie. He gave Twister two and a half stars out of four and wrote, you want loud, dumb, skillful, escapist entertainment? Twister works. That should have just been their pull quote. You want to think? (laughs) Think twice about seeing it. Janet Maslin of the New York Times, though, has what is surely one of the most puzzling reviews. She writes, somehow Twister stays as up-tempo and exuberant as a roller coaster ride, neatly avoiding the idea of real danger. Does it? Janet? I I don't know. I thought it was pretty scary. 
Lisa Schwartzbaum of Entertainment Weekly is more aligned with uh, your thinking. You write in her review, she said, giving the film a B, she write, the images that linger longest in my memory are those of windswept livestock. And that, in a teacup, sums up everything that's right and wrong about this appealingly noisy, but ultimately flyaway first blockbuster of summer. Hmm. Uh, the reviews took a serious, almost existentialist view of the violent winds, questioning whether the film did enough to illustrate the extent of the horrors. Writing in Time Magazine, Richard Schickel said, When action is never shown to have deadly or pitiable consequences, it tends towards abstraction. Pretty soon you're not tornado watching, you're special effects watching. Yeah, you know, this movie is really responsible in the way that inspired all those school tornadoes. In his review for the Washington Post, Dessen Howe, I'm going to bully that guy, wrote, It's a triumph of technology. It's a triumph of technology over storytelling and the actor's craft. Characters merely exist to tell a couple of jokes, cower in fear of downdrafts, and otherwise kill time between tornadoes. Yeah? <laughs> what do you, we just want one giant tornado it's not, all the time? It's not the seventh seal, dude. Yeah, the reviews for this are really harsh. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't know. Do you think film criticism got... No, I mean, that's an interesting point. I do think film criticism has actually gotten nicer as a, as a whole because... Because uh, we need access. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And and the people who used to have access and write this kind of stuff have been replaced by people who will just write nice garbage in exchange for perks. Mm. Mm-hmm. Despite all this criticism, Twister was up for two Oscars. Perhaps unsurprisingly, they were of the technical variety. The movie was nominated for Best Sound and Best Visual Effects by the Oscars, but it did not win either award. On the other end of the award show spectrum, Twister earned some Razzie noms for Jamie Gertz, a.k.a. The Girlfriend, for Worst Supporting. Writers Michael Ann Crichton and Anne-Marie Martin winning in the uh, probably limited category of Worst Written Film that grossed over 100 mil. Never forget that the Razzies were written by uh, the creation of a bunch of bitter Hollywood journalists. But uh, once again, you know, history has proven the winner uh, because Twister would go on to be an important footnote in the history of cinema. It is the first movie to be released on DVD for home viewing in October of 1997. Another good pub trivia question. The film's legacy could also be felt in tourism. Following the release of Twister, there was an uptick in tornado tourism with adventurous souls traveling to Twister-prone areas and trying their hand at being amateur storm chasers. A dumb thing to do. TMI does not endorse this behavior unless you have money for us, in which case I'll do literally anything. And speaking of dumb, what of our directorial tyrant, Jan de Bont? Whatever became of him? Given the success of Twister, he seemed poised to take over Hollywood. But unfortunately, karma is real. His next films, Speed 2, Cruise Control, and The Haunting, flipped, flopped. They flipped and flopped at the box office and were torn apart by critics. As a result, his reputation suffered, uh, something that apparently failed to happen in the after effects of Twister when he was beating his crew and taking shots at his lead actress in the press. Anyway, he has not directed a movie since 2003's Lara Croft Tomb Raider, colon, The Cradle of Life. I have no memory of this film, do you? No. Uh, I mean, it was the sequel. I remember the remember yeah. the first one, but yeah. What is he? I mean, he's Dutch, right? They get free health care. He's probably just back there f-ing sticking his finger in dykes. Again, low-hanging fruit. People, I'm sorry, but if you want your country to be more accurately and hilariously made fun of be more interesting the only thing i haven't touched is schwarza pete because it's just weird 
Well, speaking of woefully misbegotten sequels, naturally, given the huge success of Twister, there was lots of talk of a sequel. Surprisingly, the only project to materialize for decades, at least, was a direct-to-video sequel called Twister Warp Speed, a film I can find literally nothing about online, no Wikipedia page, no IMDb page, which leads me to believe listicle sites are lying to me. <laughs> if you or a loved one have seen this movie, please get in touch. So instead, let's talk about one of the great near misses in the canon of great cinema, a sequel to Twister directed by its original star, Bill Paxton. I didn't know this until starting researching this episode. I didn't know that Bill Paxton got into directing at the dawn of the millennium. I would assume maybe from all that time hanging out with James Cameron, as you mentioned earlier, he was behind the acclaimed question mark 2001 horror movie frailty. Well, it's definitely like an A minus film. Oh, wow. Okay. Got a great, crazy uh, Matthew McConaughey performance. Oh, yeah. We haven't had an impression this episode yet. Got a McConaughey? No. Got a McConaughey uh, seeing a cow? <laughs> cow. Moo, man. No, that's more <laughs> Owen Wilson. Uh, no, I just I watched, uh, rewatched the first season of True Detective. So I'm just, I'm stuck in that, in that <laughs> horrible nihilistic McConaughey. Well, let's get back to Bill Paxton, who has all the earnestness that, that we need right now. He hoped to revisit Twister with himself behind the lens. He told the AV Club in 2012, I'd love to direct a sequel to that movie. I always felt like there was a Jaws version of that movie. I always felt like we did the Pepsi Light version of that movie. There's a tougher version of that movie, I think, now. <laughs> I've kind of designed it so that me and Helen Hunt would have a daughter, a junior in high school, but she's already dating a guy in college, and we'd kind of hand it off to them. I just I like the idea of... <laughs> like the jaws of this where it's like the twister sneaks up on them <laughs> <laughs> the twister doesn't work for 90% of the movie yeah. <laughs> and you just never see it I guess you don't see a twister really it's just the wind the wind <laughs> I also just like I don't know twister seemed pretty tough but alright whatever whatever Paxton I wonder if it's I think it's it's kind of funny that you're like this movie scared the sh I mean, for the past 10 minutes, we've been hearing people be about, eh, this movie's for wimps. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I was also, like, nine. Well, sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paxton apparently hoped to use the 3D technology that was being pioneered for the film Avatar by his buddy JC, James Cameron. Midge. Not, not John Carpenter or Jesus Christ. Uh, but apparently... Paxton couldn't get studios interested in a Twister sequel. I, which I just, I, I don't know if the technology scared them off. I mean, I, I guess this was like 10 years after the fact of the original Twister. It's like long enough that it's weird, but not long enough that it's like a classic yeah. thing to revisit. So I, I don't know. I, I still find that strange. Unfortunately, Bill Paxton was not able to realize this dream before his untimely death at the age of 61. This is very sweet. His passing was marked by real life storm chasers. Much like Top Gun did for the Air Force, Twister went a long way in helping popularize the profession of meteorology and storm chasers specifically. A lot of this was thanks to Universal Studios, who made a grant to the University of Oklahoma, who acted as advisors on the film, and funded meteorologists to go on a mobile tour of the eastern half of the country, staging safety presentations at science museums in a dozen major cities about what to do in the event of a tornado. And then, of course, following the release of the film, the number of meteorological majors in the United States universities increased by about 10 percent. 
And a lot of the glory of this triumph reflected onto our beloved Bill Paxton, who later narrated a Storm Chaser documentary, 2011's Tornado Alley. Hence why the Storm Chaser community loved him. And shortly after Paxton's death, a group of 200 storm trackers arranged themselves to spell out his initials using their GPS trackers, which was seen by a spotter network weather report system designed to respond to extreme weather emergencies. I don't fully get how it works, but there's a YouTube clip of the moment, and it basically looks like a bunch of radar blips on a map of the country that form the letters BP. And it's huge. The whole tribute, it covered regions of Oklahoma and I think parts of Texas, which were also where they filmed in the movie, too including the real town of Wakita. So I thought that was very sweet. Spotter Network president John Wetter said of Bill Paxson, his character in Twister helped to make meteorology and the hobby of storm chasing cool. Storm chasing a hobby? I guess, man. Can you imagine doing that for free? Yeah, yeah. So sadly, Bill Paxson never got to make his Twister reboot or sequel or remake or whatever it was going to be. And for a time, there were rumors that Helen Hunt would pick up the mantle from her fallen co-star and develop a sequel herself. In June 2020, in the midst of the protests that erupted following the murder of George Floyd, she reportedly met with the studio to discuss directing and starring in a Twister sequel she had in mind, which would feature people of color. She was fairly blunt about the experience in a recent appearance on Watch What Happens Live, saying, I tried to get it made with David Diggs and Raphael Casal and me writing it. I think all three of them writing it and all black and brown storm chasers and they wouldn't do it. I was going to direct it. We could barely get a meeting. And this was June of 2020 when it was all about diversity. It would have been so cool. There was an HBCU historically black college or university near Nashville where we wanted it to take place and a rocket science club. And in this one, they would shoot the rockets into the tornado. It was going to be so cool. David Diggs elaborated there was an opportunity that we were talking about, but it didn't happen. And the reasons that it didn't happen are potentially shady, but shady in the way that we know the industry is shady. That's really wild, man. Good for Helen Hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hilariously, the version of the sequel that is coming out this summer actually took the step of killing off Helen Hunt's character, which is the official explanation why she will not be featured in <laughs> Twisters. Great, great, great oral history work putting those two right next to each other. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Twisters features a script by Mark L. Smith, who'd previously written the Academy Award winning film The Revenant. Do we think this film will uh, win an Academy Award? I mean, The Revenant is like, I mean, it's been a while since I see that movie, but isn't like 60% of it just like sweeping shots of vistas? Yeah. <laughs> and Leonardo DiCaprio like grunting on his belly through the dirt. <laughs> like <laughs> Okay, okay, bud. Oh, okay, man. Yeah, Mark L. Smith. It'd be really funny if it was Mark E. Smith, the famously cantankerous frontman of post-punk pioneers The Fall, who was just like <laughs> hated everything and everyone and was like the world's worst person to work with. He died recently, didn't he? Uh, a couple years back. Yeah, he had so many people in his band that like when people kept like alienating so many people when people Caught him out on it. His quote was, if it's me and your granny on bongos, it's still the fall. <laughs> the plot of Twisters centers on the child of Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton's respective characters, who's become a storm chaser like her parents. The most just softball way that could have gone. Okay. Oh, wait, we got to spend some time pitching this. Do you think <laughs> she's going to go up to a tornado and say, give me back my mom? <laughs> 
<laughs> will Cats in the Cradle be played? But not the original version of Cats in the Cradle, but like a Billie Eilish, like slowed down reverb, Ooh. haunting minor key, single note in the low register of the piano version. That's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah That's yeah, not yeah, bad. Yeah. Will the tornado be revealed to be like just trauma? <laughs> Was the real tornado just within us all? <laughs> the real storms that we need to fear are the ones within. Yeah. Does the storm be? <laughs> Does she quell the storm by telling it it's not their fault? <laughs> we should get Van Halen back together and break them up again for this. The surviving members of Van Halen reunite. No, 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 no. It's it's Stevie Nicks and Sammy Hagar. Oh, yeah, that's the pitch. I mean, that's the, yeah. Oh, man. We have such good ideas. Not even not even <laughs> for the soundtrack, like as the stars of the movie. Wait, who is starring in it? I'm glad you asked. It is the Where the Crawl Dads Sing star, Daisy Edgar Jones, in the lead. Ah, yes. Did she ever find out where they do, in fact, sing? Amsterdam. <laughs> Golf swing, and that's a wrap. An <laughs> old T.O. You had, you had more. The film was set to be released on July nineteenth, twenty twenty four, but I cannot imagine it will hold a candle to this cinematic classic. Did you already say a bunch of stuff about Joseph Kaczynski, and I just glazed over it? No, I didn't say it because I didn't care. Yeah, none of those words are in the Bible. <laughs> No, this is this is funny though. He was the guy who did Top Gun Maverick was initially slated to direct, but this was such a the, the possibility of twisters. Dude, they should have put a Z on it, man. Zoomers are f-ing obsessed with the late nineties and early two thousands right now. Put a yeah. Z on it. Yeah, yeah. Idiots. Why are we such good Hollywood executives, Jordan? And just alone talking about David Lee Roth. Um, smashes beer can on <laughs> throws it into his empty ho- empty room um, yeah imagine the prospect of this movie being so depressing that the guy who directed Top Gun Maverick opted out of this to commit to a Brad Pitt movie about Formula One actually That's that sounds right. pretty cool actually that sounds but it's at Apple TV oh man Hollywood screwed up fall of an empire baby yeah um, well, I'd like to leave you all with the uh, the words. Um, actually, my favorite line from this movie, which I do know from heart. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. I'm Alex Hagel. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. 
What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know, he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.